Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Before we get started, I want to welcome Audio-Technica as presenting partner for this season of Let's Talk About Sects. I've been working with their equipment from the very beginning of the show, and like many podcasters, started with an AT2020 USB mic, which has served me very well. The kind folks at Audio-Technica upgraded me to a BP40, which they tell me is also perfect for screaming into if you're in a heavy metal band. If you're not a podcaster, they have some great options like noise-cancelling headphones for travel, some really cool wireless headphones, or if you love to listen to vinyl like I do, they've got very nice turntables as well. Find out more at audio-technica.com.au. Followers of the move rejected mainstream society and headed into the wilderness in the 1970s, building isolated communities that were to set them up for the coming apocalypse. Many ex-members would later tell stories of physical hardship, beatings and worse, experienced in these communities. Move leader Sam Fife told devotees that should he ever die, they could consider it proof that he was a false prophet. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we continue, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. This episode also includes references to sexual assault, physical abuse and suicide. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening to. Sam Fife was born in Miami, Florida, around 1926, to Samuel Drew Fife Sr. and Maud Ivor Cox. He grew up to serve in the Navy in World War II, got tattooed and worked as a paving contractor, as well as performing country and Western music on the side. Possibly finding his musical ambitions unrealised, Sam then studied at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, from which he graduated in March 1957, when he would have been in his early 30s. 
Sam was on to his second marriage by this time, though I couldn't find out any details of his first marriage. His second wife, Lee, was 10 years older than him, and they had two daughters together. The same year he graduated, he told Lee that he had received visions of fathering a future prophet with another woman who had brought her deaf son to him for a faith healing. Lee agreed to let him pursue the endeavour, but in a year he was back and no child had been born. Sam would later tell followers that he had been led astray and that the whole incident was a deception of Satan. Sam and Lee headed back to his city of birth, where he started the Miami Revival Centre. Then in 1963, at around the age of 37, Sam Fife claimed to receive a message from God. This is when he started his own belief system, which never had an official name but became unofficially known as The Move. Different names associated with the group include The Body of Christ, The Company of the Manifested Sons, The Move of the Spirit, The Walk, and The Movement of God, amongst others. From Sam Fife's 1974 teaching, God's School of Divine Government, quote, We're not building a church. We're not playing church. We're not a bunch of preachers that are looking for a ministry. This is not an evangelistic move of God. It's not a full gospel move of God. It's not a healing move of God. It's the move of God in which God is bringing forth a many-membered man-child to govern the world, through whom Christ will govern the world during the millennium that is to come. Therefore, we are in God's school of divine government, and God is training us as one many-membered man, teaching us, training us, preparing us to be the government through whom the Spirit of Christ will govern the world. End quote. Former member of the MOVE, Angela Venny Kosius, suggests in an article for ICSA Today that the timing of Sam Fife's teachings around the uncertainty of the Vietnam War and much racial tension in the United States encouraged people to welcome his claim to have all the answers and to embrace the security of his strong and certain doctrine. The Vancouver Sun quoted a later community leader, Ernest Watkins, as saying, This short life is preparation for the next. Heaven is utopia. Everyone's hoping for a better situation. From this perspective, it's easy to see what might be appealing to people who are finding life pretty tough for whatever reason. I spoke with former follower Richard Kears, whose book Swindled by Faith, A Time for Reconciliation, came out earlier this year. It's a really interesting read about Richard's experiences growing up in the move. Richard's father had always been religious and was respected in their Christian reformist community. In early 1970, he and a group of men went on a trip to Charleston, South Carolina, and came back to reject the church community that Richard had known since he was born. Suddenly, Richard and his siblings were no longer able to socialise with their friends. There were several families. There's one particular family that we were great friends with, and we always went camping with them, and their kids were all around the same age, ages as us, and and they lived fairly close to us, and we, we were great friends with that family, and and being cut off from them was really, really hurtful and hard to understand at, at that young age. I was 10 at the time, and it's very, very difficult to understand why they could be our best friends one day, and all of a sudden the next day, God made a decision that they couldn't, we couldn't have anything to do with them anymore, and that was tough. I asked Richard why his parents had originally been attracted to Sam Fife's teachings. Well, first of all, let me say I was only 10 years old when it happened, so uh, I, I don't have a lot of memories uh, about the whys, uh, what my parents did and why they did it. But I do know that I've spoken to people that were my parents' friends at that time. 
And uh, since I've been an adult, I've visited with these people and I've asked them, what changed in my dad's life? What was my dad looking for? What was mom and dad looking for? And they told me that my dad was very concerned about uh, the church that he was in. Uh, Dad was super religious and he felt that there were a lot of things that were changing that he was not happy about. I mean, skirts, short skirts, uh, boys wearing long hair, those things that happened in the 70s, right? And, and those were things that dad just could not grasp and he just hated it and he didn't like rock music and he didn't like things like that. And so this group was totally, completely against all of those things and it had very strong rules about all of that. So for dad, this was one of those things that it was what he believed. And so he found something that he totally believed in again. So he was able to support it and he, and he went with it. And mom, of course, uh, I think mom went along just because mom was the wife and, and uh, I, I know she supported dad and everything that he did. And she was a very supportive mother. She was a great parent. She was a great mother. Sam Fife taught the fivefold ministry. Again, from his God school of divine government teaching quote, We are now in an hour when because all the governments of this world that have ever been brought forth have turned themselves over to the spirit of the Antichrist and are going to submit themselves to becoming a part of that one world beast. Therefore God has called out a people to bring forth and manifest in this world a new governmental order, a theocratic spirit governmental order, by which the world will be governed after God judges all the other governmental systems of this world and removes them from off the face of the earth." We are the people that God has called and anointed to bring forth out of their bellies through the spirit of revelation the principles of that governmental order, preach them to a people so they begin to catch the vision and gain all understanding of that governmental order, and establish it in their midst, just the way the government of the US was established. It didn't happen in a day. Now that governmental order, at this point, is a fivefold spirit ministry governmental order, consisting of apostles, prophets, evangelists, elders or pastors, those two terms are synonymous, and teachers. In terms of how this worked in practice, Richard Kears describes in his book, quote, We would be the boss of the rest of the world, but the road to this place was going to be hard and we would have to earn it. We had to give up our sense of self. In other words, we had to become part of the collective, part of the body of Christ. Giving up our sense of self simply meant that we could no longer think for ourselves, do anything to better ourselves, or treat ourselves with any importance. Living under this divine government involved a fairly strict outlook with traditional gender roles, conservative clothing, and in terms of parenting, spare the rod and spoil the child was often taken to extremes. Children apparently are rebellious against God from the day they are born, and Sam Fife said that they had the same nature as demons. From Sam Fife's own Divine Order for Raising Children... The most important principle you need to learn as far as raising your children is concerned, if you would bring them into life, is this. That your battle is not going to be for your children, your battle is going to be with your children. And that's where 99% of the parents in the world, the church and the move of God miss it. 
They very foolishly, if they do any fighting at all, for their child's life, that he might have life. They want to spend all their time fighting for their child instead of fighting, and I use the term fighting because it is a warfare, a daily warfare, instead of fighting with your child. The enemy that you have to defeat to preserve your child's life is not outside your child, he is in your child. Speaking about his own daughter in the same teaching, Sam said, Sometimes I'd take my belt and I'd come at her, from her standpoint as a little girl, like I was going to eat her up. But then I'd always sit down and carefully explain to her what rule she had broken and why she was going to get it, and that if she broke the rule again, she was going to get it again and again and again. And then I'd take my belt and I'd lay it on. And I didn't get upset. It didn't shake me a bit like all the foolish parents today that there were red welts on her little back end when I got through. And there were. They always go away. Better to have red welts on her back end than to have scars on her soul throughout eternity. End quote. The Charleston Daily spoke with Mrs. Douglas Pat Bazell in 1975, who said, Anybody could do the hitting because everybody belonged to the family. I've seen a woman slap a five-month-old baby for crying while lying on the floor during a service at ten at night, with people around it shouting and singing. Richard Kears recounts in his book, quote, If a child cried too much, they would be spanked until they were too tired to cry any longer. Any adult was permitted to beat a child if a rule was being broken. An adult was anyone who could get away with it. I remember 13- and 14-year-old girls hitting babies, covering their mouths till they stopped crying, even if it meant waiting till the baby turned blue and simply stopped crying because they had stopped breathing. A board of education was the name given to a wooden board used for hitting children, and a child's backside was known as the seat of learning in the move. Punishments weren't just reserved for children, though. Shari Smith had joined when she was 19, after becoming friends with a member. She told the New York Times two years after she had left, quote, They tell you to kneel and put your hands on a chair. Then they take a wooden paddle and whip you a few times, three times if you're lucky. The first time I got three, other times I don't remember. Rebellious people were tied to a bed or chair or on the floor. They put a headset on them and played preachers from the group. The length depended on how long they fought it, one day or two days. They would also throw people in cold showers for running away. They would throw you in with your clothes on and keep you until you hollered Jesus loud enough. In 1970, Sam Fife shared a prophecy that the world would end within five years. Here's Richard Kears again. Uh, Sam Fife believed that they were the chosen people, the chosen ones of God that were going to uh, rule the world and rule everyone that survived the Holocaust, which to them was going to be, at the time, a nuclear war that was going to happen and wipe out most of the people on the planet. And he was pretty adamant about that. He, he felt that this group was going to be, they were the only chosen people from God that were going to do this. Not, and a lot of other of these groups feel the same way. But in the move, it was, oh my God, it was just, 
so intense that they were the chosen people and everyone else was sinners and going to hell and and uh, we were going to rule with God sitting at his right hand and everybody else was going to be our servants. That was the way it was. Sam instructed his followers that they needed to head into the wilderness and set up their own self-sufficient communities in preparation for the coming apocalypse. Conditions would be stark as hardship would help condition them for difficult times ahead, including famine. But it would also be an escape from a tainted world full of greed and pornography. By 1974, the move had thousands of followers, many of them living in harsh conditions in communes across Canada, South America and Alaska. Well, moving to the middle of nowhere was uh, kind of an order by Sam Fike because he believed that the, the, the world was going to be destroyed. And he believed honestly and taught everyone that being out in the middle of the woods in the middle of nowhere would be the only way that anyone was going to survive. So that was the reason for going to the woods was to survive. And uh, so you lived constantly in fear. We were told at least four or five times in the, in the years that I was involved that we were given a specific date that the world was going to end. And then God kept changing his mind and changing his mind and it never happened. So uh, that was specifically why, what all the people believe. They just believed what Sam told them, like move to the forest and you'll be safe, right? Richard Keir's family headed to northern British Columbia. In his book, he says, we were leaving everyone we loved behind. Our relatives were no longer a part of our lives, and we were told that they were no longer our family. The hierarchy of the move was very much taught as God first, members second, and family third. Sam Fife and his father ministry did not move to the wilderness themselves. Other families sold their property and belongings and donated the proceeds to buy up land on which they could build farms. Interestingly, as tensions with Russia and China heightened, the fear of the spread of communism was often cited as a sign of the coming end times by members of the move, just as they happily gave up their belongings to create communes in the wilderness. The land was often in remote, barren and freezing locations. In his book, Richard remembers insulating the outhouse toilet seat with styrofoam to try to make it tolerable to sit on in the minus 40 degree winters. Former member Venny Kosius, who had gathered a lot of information about the move and makes it available on her website, theorised that Alaska was so attractive to the leadership as they could collect a per-head pipeline dividend payment for each resident they set up there. Buildings had to be constructed and meals were all eaten communally under gas lanterns in a hall called the Tabernacle, which was also used as a church. Members called each other sister and brother. Life was incredibly tough on the farms. Here's Richard again. Work was an everyday thing. I mean, we did pretty much take Sundays off. We could do our own thing on Sundays. I mean, there was still the cows to milk and feed and the pigs to, to you know, that type of thing. But Sundays were a, a day of, of pretty much a day of rest and we could relax and do what, pretty much whatever we wanted uh, within the limits and confines of the farm. But the rest of the time, it was it was work. I mean, we had homes to build for hundreds of people. We had, because uh, we were the first on the farm, when we moved there, there was nothing. So there were no roads, there were no fields, there were there was no crops in the ground. We had to do all of that, and most of it was done, the majority of it was done by hand. And uh, so even as kids, we had to work all the time, and it never ended. For Richard, the endless, tiring work began from the age of 12. 
From his book, Swindled by Faith, again, quote, At the age of 12, it was not uncommon for me to spend 8 to 10 hours a day digging ditches, cutting firewood or performing some other task that should have been performed by grown men. I remember crying at night because it seemed like the work would never end. It would never be finished. And I was right. It never was. 12 years old, yes. From 12 on, I was, uh, I was basically... There was, there was one fellow that was a, an elder, and he uh, saw me playing with a toy tractor one time, a little bulldozer that I had, and he walked up to me and took it from me and made me dig a hole in the back behind our trailers, and he made me bury it. And he told me, now you're a man. And as a man, you don't play with toys anymore. And that was the end of my childhood. A decree from Sam Fife had instructed that followers were to avoid pop culture, modern fashion and all media outlets, as everything in what Richard Kears calls the real world was created by Satan. Richard managed to access some news from the outside world, however, which made him aware that things weren't always as the community was being led to believe. Richard was in Jamaica when we spoke, where he now lives, and there was a bit of background noise. I had a bit of a unique ability to stay connected with the real world because we had a sheep barn and in the sheep barn there was a room where I stayed quite often and I, and we collected newspapers for toilet paper and every time they'd go to town they would bring back bundles and bundles of newspapers so I would take the most recent newspapers that I could find and I would bring them to the room down in the sheep barn and I, I stored them under the bed there and I would read and read and read and read. And I, I knew what was going on in the world and I knew that things were not what we were being told. And I was able to keep my mind uh, free from believing that the outside world was all bad because I saw a lot of good things and I was reading a lot of good things. So sorry about that, I don't know if you hear that noise. But that was a truck going by in Jamaica. <laughs> Venny Koshis also wrote a book about her experiences in the move called Cult Child. Her mother became involved with the organisation in the early 1970s when Venny was three years old and her father was away with the military. Her mother ended up giving her father an ultimatum that he join the move or else she would divorce him and he refused to join. So the move funded her mother's side of the divorce, and Venny, her two older siblings, and her mother moved to a deliverance farm at Ware, Massachusetts. Upon arrival, any of their belongings deemed not useful to the community, including baby photos, were burned on a bonfire. Deliverance farms were supposed to help rid people of demons, and there are reports of brutal conditions from those who experienced them. Venny says that her family was sent there because her mother was overweight, her brother had behavioural issues, and she was loud, though this was due to being deaf in one ear. All of these things, according to Sam Fife's teachings, were caused by demons that needed exercising. Former member Priscilla Roberts was sent to a deliverance farm after her parents discovered her plan to run away from home at the age of 15. She'd decided she had to leave home after an exorcism had been forced on her, and she'd been held down and beaten with paddles by move followers while her parents watched. 
she told People magazine for a documentary that aired earlier this year about her experiences at the Deliverance Farm with ice baths, beatings and other forms of abuse. Mother of three Charlene Hill was sent to the same farm while Priscilla was there and was suspected of having mental health issues. She was tied to her bed every night and when she went on a hunger strike, she was held underwater and forced fed every time she came up for breath. In 1977, John Henson, who ran the Deliverance Farm, was sentenced to prison time for kidnapping, though the conviction was later overturned for lack of evidence. At one point, a tape circulated around MOVE communities that was required listening for followers, and was presented as a recording of Sam Fife exercising a demon from a woman named Jane Miller, who had just come out of psychiatric care, her third hospitalisation. During a previous hospitalisation, she'd received electric shock therapy. Here's a small part of the recording to give you a sense of Sam Fife's approach. You try to make this girl think she's crazy, don't you? No, she's crazy. What? She knows she's crazy. You're a liar, devil. You're the one that tells her she's crazy, aren't you? Huh? Well, she believes me, and that's the important thing. What? She believes me. She believes you when you tell her she's crazy? Huh? Anthony, devil. She believes you when you tell her she's crazy? Sometimes. Huh? You're the one that makes this girl tormented, aren't you? Huh? Anthony, in the name of Jesus. Venny wrote for ICSA Today, quote, My time at Ware was filled with torture and humiliation. I was subjected to demon-casting-out rituals while tied to chairs and beaten, and to severe discipline, which included but was not limited to hypothermia baths, sleep deprivation, beatings with belts and paddles, public humiliation, and withholding of food. I also experienced sexual abuse through grooming, petting, fondling, and eventually penetration. After four years, the family moved to a farm in Alaska, where Venny experienced child labour, deprivation, harsh punishment and continued abuse. When her sister was 14, she was groomed by a man in his 40s. The 14-year-old girl was condemned as an untreatable harlot. She had to stand up in front of the 200 community members that were supposed to be her family and ask their forgiveness for being a whore of Babylon, and Venny, her sister and her mother were then expelled from the move. Former member Suzanne McConnell spoke to over 50 ex-followers from many different communities in researching her book, The Still Before Dawn, and came across multiple stories of girls, teenage and younger, being sexually abused by older men, with the men being moved to different farms and the girls getting blamed. She was sexually abused by a man in his 30s when she was 16. Richard tells a story in his book about his sister being sexually abused by some boys in their community when she was young. When it was brought to the attention of his father, who was an elder, and the parents of two of the three boys, his sister was blamed and beaten alongside Richard himself, who had been the one to tell someone what was going on. The boys, who were 16 and 17 years old, got off scot-free. Richard's sister was nine. Stories abounded of divorces amongst couples where one had decided to join the move and the other wasn't keen. 
The Charleston Daily reported on an incident in 1973 where there were 15 divorces pending at one time in a move community in Canton, Ohio. But Sam Fife claimed that divorce rates were no higher in the move than in the general church community. And for those who wanted to marry, they had to wait 12 months with no physical contact before seeking the approval of an elder to proceed with the union. The process is known as walking out. Everything was very gender segregated, particularly amongst the young people on the farms. From Richard's book, the assumption was that we were all inherently bad and we would certainly do evil bad things if we were allowed to spend any time together. A lot of people don't understand, but when you're in a situation where everything is about uh, taboo, 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 then you, you don't learn anything either. And I, I honestly felt, until I was 14 years old, I really was not sure how boys and girls were like conceived. I, I was under the impression, we, we had a swimming hole in the backyard, and the boys and girls were not allowed to swim together. And I was told very specifically that if boys and girls swam together, the girls would get pregnant. Uh, I, I understood years later what they meant by that was if we saw a girl swimming and we got turned on, we might go into the woods and do something and she'd become pregnant. But I didn't understand that at 14. Held to his original prophecy from 1970, in 1975, Sam Fife predicted the end of days would occur that year. The Charleston Daily reported that there were around 4,000 followers at this time, though some have estimated numbers reached up to 44,000 followers worldwide at the move's peak. From Richard's book, quote, Eventually 1975 passed, and the world didn't end. A new doomsday was set for 1982, then 1996, and then 2000. Each time we were told that it didn't happen because God's people, the people in the move, were simply not prepared, and God was giving them more time. Around the area where the Kears family was living, members of the move also ran a restaurant and body shop, serving some highly rated home-cooked meals for travellers along the Alaska Highway, near mile marker 143, though Richard found his own food experiences in his community often less than appealing, with ground wheat for breakfast and incredibly heavy bread. Some communities also built successful logging companies that generated income for the organisation. I've read that there was a 50% tithe on any money made. Shepherd's Inn was created as a trailer park community further along the highway, where older members of the move could live after they could no longer work and became a burden. They might be lucky to end up there. Former member Lisa Kendall wrote in a blog post, quote, Exploitation has left thousands of women from this one cult alone destitute. Many women who cooked, cleaned and gardened for decades on the move's many farms were dropped off at government-funded nursing facilities when they could no longer work and needed care themselves. After taking their savings, social security checks and benefiting from decades of unpaid labour, they were cast aside when they could no longer produce. On the farms there were many incidents of illness and injury and those suffering were told that they would be healed if they had more faith in God. Richard told me about an incident with his father's health. The moment where my belief system left me, where I stopped believing, was when we were first in British Columbia, we were living in camper trailers up at the north end of of one of the neighbor's properties because there was no road to our place yet. And every morning we'd have to get on the wagon and go with shovels and pickaxes, and we're building this road into the property by hand. And uh, 
my dad became very ill and I don't know what was wrong with him, but he had pain, very, very bad pain. And for days he was in his trailer. He cried and moaned and cried and he was just like wailing and so much pain. And this one old elder came into our trailer one day and he said, you know, I don't think your dad's going to make it because, uh, and he's probably going to die because I don't think he has enough faith. And, and so I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, if he had enough faith, then he would be healed. And if he doesn't have enough faith, then God's going to take him. Well, I, I was, I was 12. And so you get terrified. Your dad's going to die. Right. And uh, eventually dad got better and it was fine, but that was where I lost my faith. And that's kind of what the whole book is about is being completely swindled being told to believe in something and believing in it completely and then realizing that there is absolutely no way that there would ever be a God that would do that to someone just never going to happen. And, and, and I lost it. That's where I lost my faith. I asked Richard about another story in his book that I found quite shocking. Yes. On one of the farms, uh, there was a young man who was married with a couple of young children and he had filled a lantern with the naphtha gas, which is a white gas. And, he, and you pump up these lanterns to a high pressure, and then you light them. And this, this lantern blew up in his face, and, and, uh, and he ended up with third, second or third degree burns over a good portion of the front of his body. And uh, they just never took him to a hospital. They never took him to a doctor, nothing. He just stayed in bed and and we started getting reports that he was starting to do better and he was getting better and we had to pray and we prayed and prayed and prayed. And then finally one day we were told, oh, no, he didn't make it. He died. Well, what happened? And, th- and then we were told that he died because we didn't have enough faith. There wasn't enough faith to heal him when reality was that he died because infection set in and he never went to a doctor. And as an adult now, I can look back at it and see how just how foolish that was. But... That's the way it was on the farms. It was faith. You had to have faith. And if you didn't have faith, then everything went wrong and it was your own fault. By 1975, Richard couldn't see a future for himself. I, I, I was very depressed. I didn't know what to do, but I knew that I, I couldn't go on. I actually had, had talked to my dad about leaving, and my dad had... Uh, there was some guys, some of the young guys were going out and working in the, in the forest, cutting trees and, uh, for lumber companies, and they were making some money, and they were getting off the farm, and I... And they were still living on the farm but they, and giving their money to the farm, but at least they were off the farm. And I wanted to do that. And my dad said, no, no, you, you're not going to do that. You're going to stay on the farm. And so I tried to find ways to get out, and I just couldn't. And there was no way I could get out. And then there was an opportunity to go on to a trap line uh, and work with the, with the natives on, the, on a northern reserve up there for six months. And I asked, I asked if I could go, and, and I was turned down for that. And... So I tried and tried to find ways to get off the farm and it just, I couldn't do it. So one day I decided I just, I was finished. So I was in the sheep barn and I was looking after the sheep. That was my job. And I, uh, I just set myself up with a rope over the rafter. And, and uh, when I, when I uh, stepped off the rope, uh, tightened around my neck and the, the rafter actually broke and I fell down on the floor, but 
I didn't want to die. That wasn't my plan. And it, it just, I don't, I, it was that moment that I realized that I just had to leave. I couldn't stay there anymore and, and move on with my life. And I know that that's difficult for some people to understand that you get to that point, but uh, there was a time where you, I just, I just couldn't find, couldn't find the way out anymore. And that was my last resort, but I found a new resort once I hit the floor because I realized that I didn't want that. I, I needed to find a way to live and I needed to find a way to get off the farm. And I did. But that moment when I hit the floor is the moment that I decided that I'd rather go to hell. And, and I made that choice. I made a choice that if hell was my only option, I had to go. And that was it. Richard was 15 years old when this happened. After some time to think things through, He packed a pair of jeans, a pair of socks, a shirt and a jacket and walked away. He had a dollar and 97 cents in his pocket. I asked Richard to read a passage from his book for me. The connection was getting a little dicey with Jamaica, so I apologise for some quality issues here, but I think it's worth hearing in Richard's own voice. It was three miles plus to the main highway cross country from our home. The wind was blowing and the temperature was well below freezing. I do not recall everyone's feeling cold as I walked through the snow. Never in my life, even to this day, have I felt such a feeling of relief. Every step I took, I could feel the weight lifting off my shoulders. It was simply amazing. For the first time in many years, I felt real again. The world looked different. It felt free. And when I think back, I had absolutely no fear of the future because I knew that there was no way it could be worse than what I was walking away from. My life was mine now, and I was going to make it work. I was never going to be abused or ignored by anyone from this church again. Richard ended up in Edmonton, where he found work as a carpet layer. A few weeks after he had left the farm, Sam Fife himself came by with an elder to drive Richard back to the farm via Fort St John, which was an eight-hour car trip from Edmonton. On the journey, Sam quizzed him about his reasons for leaving. From Richard's book, quote, I asked him about the abuses that I saw on the farm, the excessive discipline, and we even spoke about a specific case of alleged sexual abuse. Sam admitted to me that things needed to be addressed, that God would take care of all of this, and the people had to work hard to achieve perfection. He clearly stated that he was aware there were some problems on the farms, and the Father Ministry was fully aware of these problems. When we arrived in Fort St John, I got out of the van, walked to the bus depot, and purchased a ticket back to Edmonton. Richard also writes, It is important to know that leaders of the move have always denied knowing anything about abuse of children. They claim no one ever told them they had never heard of it. That claim is false. Sam Fife himself knew about it. He knew because I told him. Richard made the long drive back a few times to help other people leave, before he was told he was not welcome at the farm anymore. He was disowned by his parents for many years, but they eventually came back into contact, and Richard forgave them, though they never admitted to having done anything wrong. They both remained with the move until they passed away, their final home being at the Shepherd's Inn trailer park.
While his followers were living their harsh lives, preparing for the end days, Sam Fife had been flying his private planes across the country and around the world, spreading his message. Communities had started up in Brazil, Colombia, Mexico, Uganda, Singapore, Scotland and Ireland. He also held conventions, and Richard Kears had travelled with his family to attend one in Canton, Ohio where he stood up in front of everyone and said, mark my words, if I ever die, if this mortal body ever dies, is 100% proof that I'm a false prophet. On the 26th of April 1979, Sam Fife was flying a plane through the heavy fog in Guatemala, with three elders as passengers. The plane crashed into a mountainside and all were killed. Sam Fife was 54 years old. Sam's second-in-command, Buddy Cobb, assumed leadership of the move and somehow managed to keep most followers on board in spite of Sam Fife's previous teachings about his immortality. Richard Kears asked his father about the false prophet statement and his father told him Sam had achieved such a level of perfection that God had to remove him from this world. Some people are sceptical that the plane crash even happened at all and wonder whether Sam Fife set himself up somewhere overseas with the money that he had amassed from his followers. Richard and those who left faced a difficult future. Venny Kosius describes wearing a mask of functionality over severe dysfunction such as alcoholism, drug use and intrafamily hatred and lashing out. Venny eventually found some solace in art and in writing about her experiences. Here's Richard. I know of several that, that as adults couldn't deal with it and ended up committing suicide. I know of several that are that struggle daily with you know uh, the abuse of drugs and alcohol. I know uh, I know of one particular young lady that actually became uh, you know she she just she became a hooker and she was on drugs and she ended up overdosing and killing herself and you know so and I'm not saying those types of things don't happen in the real world because they do. But if you look at percentages and you look at ratios, uh, it's really high. The, the, the level of depression, the level of people that have a difficult time dealing with the past. And uh, it's not just the move, it's most cults. People from cults have a, generally have a really hard time uh, letting go of the past, forgiving, and, and being able to deal with the world because you've been told all your life how evil it is. I remember the first glass of wine that I drank. I was absolutely convinced that I was going to hell. I mean, and I was, I was well in my teens and I'd been off the farm for some time and uh, I still was afraid to drink wine because I was scared I was going to go to hell. Richard managed to reject many of the things that he'd grown up believing in the move eventually. Even to this day, some of my very best friends, my closest and dearest friends are, are homosexuals and, and, and uh, they seem to be the most compassionate people in the world that I know, <laughs> you know. So I, I don't look at that as, as even a factor in life. You are what you are, and, and uh, I, I learned to accept that. I also have friends, My best one of my best friends is, is black, one of, uh, and, and so racism was never a part of my life. Uh, and I find living in Jamaica is amazing because the, uh, the people here, they, they, they say they feel that with me, like, to them, I'm just a brother. I'm just like everyone else. And and uh, I think I contribute that to the fact that I've always tried to stay open and compassionate and and uh, just try to be a good person all the time. I've always tried to be a good person. 
I asked Richard if there were any red flags he'd suggest people look out for if they're thinking of joining a community for whatever reason. The biggest thing that I would question if I was an adult in any organization, in any group, in anything that you're introduced to is, first of all, the moment they tell you that you can no longer participate and be in your family uh, and and you, you have to leave all your friends and you have to leave everything that's close to you, it's wrong. There's something wrong. Uh, But even bigger than that, look at how the children are treated. And if children are treated with discipline, with, with, with physical discipline, if children are treated like they are um, to be, to be beat into shape, uh, then there's something wrong with that group because that's not right. So if you look at those two factors, it's really easy to tell my dad was so convinced that he was right and everybody was wrong. And he once said to me many, many years ago when I was very young, I remember him saying to me, Richard, he said, pay attention in life because he said, if you ever meet anyone that's completely convinced that they're always right and everyone else is wrong, then you can bet that they're wrong. And I told him that about two years before he passed away. And I said, you know, a wise guy once told me this. And he said, well, who would have, who would have told you that? And I said, you told me that, Dad. I said, told me that and he didn't know what to, how to answer me. I asked Richard if he had any thoughts for someone who might be battling with the idea of leaving a high demand group. Well, first of all, when you're there, you don't even really have any idea how free you feel once you walk away. And that freedom that I described as I was walking up that hill. When you when you feel that that moment you realize that your whole entire life is ahead of you and you can do anything you want to do and you can be anyone you want to be without being judged, without being criticized, without worrying about going to hell and just enjoy it. And the advice that I would give to anyone is that if you decide to do that, find friends, reconnect with people from the past, talk to lots of people, don't don't seclude yourself because you get depressed, you get worried. You need to have a new world to, to, to fill the void because when your whole world is that, you've got nothing when you leave. And so you have to fill that void. I filled it with music and I filled it with reading and I filled it with friends and and uh, I'm fine. I'm wonderful. I love my life and I'm very happy and I'm in a very good place. I want people to know that they can find that place as well. It's just a matter of that first step. In 2005, a Yahoo group started up online where ex-members of the move shared a variety of experiences. When the group reached 317 members and over 7,000 messages, four members, Julie Leyland Biggestaff, Rod W. Bracewell, Michael Martella and Greg Sittig, wrote an open letter to the Ministry of the Move. They didn't claim to speak for everyone in the group, but they felt compelled to share some of what they had discovered. It's a generous letter that invites a thoughtful dialogue and asks the ministry, as Christians, to come and reason together with us in love. Here is an edited excerpt. While we do not doubt that the intent of those in leadership was to make decisions which were for the good of the group and for the preservation of the move, 
The website reveals that many individual lives were damaged rather than healed as a result of their time in the move. From our perspective, the first fruit of the move is a generation whose faith has been fractured and whose hearts need healing. We are concerned because of the intensity of pain these individuals experienced in the past and, for some, continue to experience. We are concerned because most reports indicate that the ministry, or at least some of the father ministry, were aware of these incidents and participated in what appears to be a systematic cover-up of these events. We are concerned because this cover-up seems to have been put in place in order to conceal from the overall body of the move the nature of these events and to shield those involved from the moral and legal consequences of their behaviour. For this sort of concealment to take place in a Christian organisation, let alone one that claims to be perfecting saints and bringing forth the manifested sons of God to rule the earth, is shocking and deeply grieving. The letter goes on to talk about sexual assault of minors by those in leadership positions, financial extortion and exploitation, being unable to raise any legitimate concerns without being ostracised, and people feeling trapped on farms. One suggestion was setting up a process to compensate those who left the farms for their years of service, or at least giving them funds to cover six months of setting up a new life in the outside world. The letter is signed off, May the God of Love Guide Us All in Truth, and it was sent to many different leaders and everyone on the IMA, or International Ministerial Association, mail system. It never received a response. In 2017, Buddy Cobb's granddaughter posted a video on YouTube in which she asked her grandfather about all the people who got abused. He said, There's nothing that happens to you but is the will of God for you. They need to check in with him why that's going on. The move had also been in the press around 2013, when one of the men who had been a leader in the 1970s and 80s, a man named Douglas McLean Sr., was investigated for his biopharmaceutical company selling stock to terminally ill patients based on a product made from goat blood that he claimed could cure HIV. Douglas McLean was then arrested in San Antonio, Texas in 2014 on charges of defrauding an elderly paraplegic doctor of $200,000. Buddy Cobb passed away in late 2017, and some communities remained under elders who ran them as they had before, believing the end days were nigh. Douglas Todd for the Vancouver Sun in 2003 had written about a group of farms then 20 hours drive northeast of Vancouver. They'd had around 250 people and had been running for 30 years in the Peace River region, which is where Richard Keir's family had lived. Elder Ernest Watkins told the journalist, When the year 2000 came and passed, some of us said God missed a great opportunity. By 2016, the main Peace River farm no longer existed, and a farm two hours away had only a few handfuls of people left. But although numbers have dwindled, there remain many ex-members who are concerned about the safety of children who may still be involved with the group, or with associated organisations such as ISOT, which stands for In Search of Truth, and was involved with disciplinary placements for MOVE members. Former follower Angie Carpenter wrote for former member Lisa Kendall's website, quote, I believe there are good-hearted people right now in the MOVE 
who have no clue about the history of what they follow. I am sure if they did, they might step back and question some of their choices. Every day they walk through the ghosts of those who were beaten and molested on the very ground they so proudly proclaim to be God's chosen place. If it was God's chosen place, it stopped being so after the first child was hurt. Douglas Todd published an account by ex-follower E.D. Welch, who visited the Peace River region in 2016. Her words beautifully depict some of her conflicting feelings about the move. Where once this location housed more than 100 people, now it is down to fewer than 20. The main elder has passed away. All the young people have left. As we conclude our visit and drive away, I experience a rapid volley of conflicting emotions. Shame that I was so hesitant to visit these nice folks. Surprise that visiting the group after 30-some years still raises feelings of reticence verging on panic. Gratitude that my life today is different, that I do not need the approval of a group of elders to marry, to drive to town, to choose a life path. I am free in all matters to believe what my heart tells me and to act accordingly. But I am also struck by a deep sadness, even of loss. These people once thought the apocalypse was imminent. They left their homes and families across the Americas and drove to remote regions to fulfil what they believed was God's divine bidding. With gusto and fervent faith, they built log cabins and root cellars and central buildings meant to withstand the Great Tribulation. God would protect them, see them through it. They learned to save seeds, to shear sheep and to weave warm felt linings for mucklucks. They prepared for the end times. But the end times did not come. And now their numbers have dwindled. Key prophets and elders, those who carried the flame of faith, have died. Their young people have moved away. Many of their farms have been sold. Their vision did not come to fruition. As we drive away and the cold sleet slaps our windows, I struggle with the feeling that these people have wasted their lives tucked away in remote sections of the tundra. And yet, they lived with great conviction, they lived in faith, they had a deeper sense of community than most people will ever begin to know. They lived with a sense of calm because no matter what happens, God is in control. You did not hear the word stress in their lexicon. And how is that a wasted life? For those who experienced abuse at the hands of other members, or who felt that they never made the choice to be there, it's a little more complicated. I'll leave the final word today with Richard Kears. I believe, like in my case, I think that, you know, parents and adults can make choices for themselves, and they, and they do, and I have no problem with them doing that. But when you're bringing children into this and it's repressive and it hurts children, I think we need to, as a society, look at this and say, hey, this is not acceptable, and we need to stop this kind of thing from happening. And we need, but in order to do that, we need to recognize, we need to be able to recognize what a cult is and, and, and how it affects people's lives. If, if people that knew my parents at the time would have known that what, what, what mom and dad were getting into and, and would have had more knowledge and more information and everything on this, I think they could have probably initially talked to mom and dad and changed their minds. But because no one was aware and no one knew, uh, everyone was kind of supportive, like, okay, you found something cool, go for it, see what happens, right? And it turned out to be a disaster.
Richard Keir's book, Swindled by Faith, is available on Amazon, most online bookstores and in e-reader formats. A very big thanks to Richard for sharing his story with me for this episode. Another thanks is due to Venny Kosius, who's made a lot of materials available online about the move, including the SAM5 teachings that I referenced this episode. You can access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon. Patreon.com slash LTASpod. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was written and researched by me, Sarah Steele. Music was by Joe Gould, whose incredible band, The Crooked Fiddle Band, have a new album out called Another Subtle Atom Bomb, which I highly recommend you check out. The recording engineer this episode was Ray Wasserman at Studios 301. Information sources are listed on our website at ltaspod.com. Thanks again to Audio Technica, presenting partner for Season 3 of Let's Talk About Sects. If you're in the market for some top-quality audio equipment, be sure to head to audio-technica.com.au to check out some of their stuff. Their range of earphones and headphones is quite ridiculous, from sport to gaming to professional studio, and they're known for some of the best sound around. If you have been personally affected by involvement in a cult, or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via www.cifs.org.au and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via www.icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at www.iasp.info. Thanks for listening and hope you'll join me again next month. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.